In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remembering what we considered last week in preparation for Pentecost, the apostles were commanded by the Lord in in the first chapter of Acts of the Apostles to be patient. They were commanded to wait in Jerusalem until God fulfilled his promise and conveyed to them the power of the Holy Spirit. He reiterates that in the first chapter of Acts of the Apostles. And remember what I've said in years past, how the apostles returned to Jerusalem after witnessing the ascension, praising God, rejoicing, praying even publicly in the temple. Consider for a moment now, having already adjusted your meditation on how the apostles' spirits spent those nine days, consider who was there. Because typically we have an image of Pentecost, fittingly, with Our Lady in the midst of 12 apostles, as should be the case. Judas having been replaced in the intervening novena. Sometimes it's, uh, it's an occasion to uh, open the word of God with our Protestant friends and remind them what sacred scripture tells us. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brethren, the company of persons was in all, about 120. The images that we have then of Pentecost are limited because chapter 2 begins with, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes down to all of us, the tongue over the tongue of fire over the head of the Blessed Virgin Mary is no uh, added bit of devotion. The Holy Spirit was conveyed to all the faithful. Remember what happens just a few chapters later when the apostles find out about those who had been baptized but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They immediately sent two apostles to go lay hands on them so that they received the Holy Spirit. This gift is meant for every believer. It's supposed to go hand in hand with baptism. We easily forget that. 
Although baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit, or baptism and confirmation, originally happened hand in hand by an apostle, the average size of a church or diocese being equivalent to maybe all saints in Manassas or even smaller. And so a bishop could do the baptisms and convey the Holy Spirit through the sacrament of confirmation to all the faithful. And as you know, as time went on, and bishops were no longer the ones primarily doing baptism, baptism obviously being given to newborns and given to all those who receive the faith, the gift of the Holy Spirit or the sacrament of confirmation would follow later when the bishop was able to impart that sacrament. And you also know that Eastern churches, the Oriental churches, have the regular permission, expectation rather, that the priest who does the baptism has the permission, in fact, is required to give that sacrament. And so it's too easy for for us to think of the gift of the Holy Spirit as something unique, something perhaps even earned. And it's all too easy then to, to even go a step further and relegate it to the realm of the clergy. And as much as we witness the the work of the Holy Spirit yesterday in ordaining four new priests. It's just simply a different manner. It's a different gift given to those men for a specific purpose. But the Holy Spirit is given to everyone. Take a step further back and remember, of course, that God is always everywhere. Nothing exists without God giving it existence. And at the same time, God acts in history at specific times and places for specific purposes. So it's not as though God is this constant waterfall or this constant sunshine. And it's simply up to us to open the door or step outside or make ourselves accessible to his grace and his power. In some ways, that's the case. The actual grace that we receive comes through, is mediated through just about anything and everything. But God acts in profound ways at times and places of his choosing and often waits until we are ready. It's not a question of earning this grace, but it's a matter of the grace not being squandered. And yet, how how little do we have to reflect on our lives to realize that we to whom the Holy Spirit has already been given, and even multiple times, have yet to manifest fully what God had intended in giving us the Holy Spirit.
And so we, we beg the Lord to break us. Because it's not just a question of our, our will or our, our good intent. They're up against serious obstacles. And so we, we actually ask the Lord to, to break us, to open us, to humble us, so that we can be fitting vessels of all that he wants to give us. Fittingly, before a priest is ordained, he lies prostrate on the floor. He did so already at his diaconate ordination. He must die in order to be able to receive what God intends to give him. Again, not unique to the clergy, we all died in our baptism. We were all given over to the waters of the River Jordan in death and participated in our Lord's crucifixion and rise to a new life, a new, a new life that's supposed to be completely detached from the world and temporal things. At the same time, not squandering their potential for good. Doesn't he instruct us to be like the dishonest steward? Make good use of the things you have temporarily. You won't have them long. They can serve you so that they get you to where you want to be eventually. So we don't spurn temporal things, but we're detached from them. And St. Paul spends a great deal of time explaining that the Holy Spirit is given to everyone. Different ways, different gifts, different purposes, different ends. All ultimately for the same goal, which is the goal of every action of the Holy Spirit. To conform us to Christ. To sanctify. So that Christ can then bring us back to God the Father. In learning more about the history of our missile and changes to it, whether it be 1,200 years ago or 90 years ago, as the case may be, 80 years ago, there's an interesting discussion to be had, not just for esoteric purposes, but for our own self-examination, how much do we think we are ready to receive the Holy Spirit? Have we truly prayed? Have we kept vigil? As you know, the Holy Mass is meant to be offered in the morning. The resurrection is symbolized along with the second coming of our Lord and the rising of the sun. And so Mass facing east carries a significant symbolism. But there were on occasions in the early church, which is to say the first 600 years, a vigil. A vigil didn't mean there was a mass the day before. Certainly didn't mean that there was a mass the evening before. 
It meant that the first mass of the solemnity, the first mass of the morning of the solemnity, began the evening before and lasted through the night. And the faithful kept vigil. I've had one parishioner at one parish ask me, or ask us, I wasn't the pastor, for permission to use the church all through the night because he and a few others wanted to chant all 150 psalms. And they did. I don't think they ever asked to be able to do that again. And it, and it does invite us to consider what, what did they do for six hours, for seven hours? praying the sacred liturgy? Were they all caught up in ecstasy as Padre Pio was so often? His mass lasted four hours. Over the course of time, that practice, which certainly couldn't have been obligatory, but even that, that vigil mass then uh, became something that had to be um, accommodated to circumstances, so it was moved to the morning before. Because Mass ought to be in the morning, ideally. That perhaps has contributed to our lack of imagination and what it, what it means to keep vigil, what a vigil is in, in the first place. The Holy Spirit has already been given us, but we know that the Holy Spirit doesn't accomplish through us what he desires all the time. All of us have love to one degree or another, but not every one of us who has love also has zeal. We have love that remains in our thoughts or in our hearts. We have love that never is expressed in action. It's the kind of love that can convince us of our sincerity. And at the same time, make others cynical about what it means when we say we love Love isn't something isolated. I, I can't send Sam out to the parking lot to love for five minutes and then to come back. Even as, as paltry as our English language is, it won't even permit that. It will permit us to say, I love donuts, as Russian and Arabic do, or Russian and Persian. But, but love is, I love Another. And in our native Latin language, it means I love someone. It's different from I have loving thoughts about someone. It means I love them. What are the obstacles to that happening? What do we put in the way of the Holy Spirit? 
to prevent him from being efficacious. We ask the Lord then on this great and glorious solemnity to give thanks primarily to inspire us to be grateful for everything in the church and through the church that communicates his grace and his truth. To marvel at how he is able to work even through us, through broken people and broken systems. He keeps the church faithful because the church is his spotless bride. He gives the Holy Spirit to her constantly. And as the Holy Spirit was given to the Blessed Virgin to bring the Lord into the world, the Lord still continues to come through his bride. And with that thanks, we offer our prayers begging to be made worthy of being part of his body, to be made worthy of being part of the life of the church. To make sure that his grace does not end in us, that we are not the terminus of his manifold gifts, but we are the means of others to receive his grace. With humility and with gratitude, the Lord might be able to begin to open our hearts and break us from all the earthly attachments we have and the fears that perhaps captivate us. We ask the Lord then to give us renewed devotion to the Holy Ghost. We ask him to make us the instruments of his seven gifts. And so we pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, who before ascending into heaven did promise to send the Holy Ghost to finish your work, and the souls of your apostles and disciples. Deign to grant the same Holy Spirit to me that he may perfect in my soul the work of your grace and your love. Grant me the spirit of wisdom that I may despise the perishable things of this world and aspire only after the things that are eternal. The spirit of understanding to enlighten my mind with the light of your divine truth the spirit of counsel, that I may ever choose the surest way of pleasing God and gaining heaven, the spirit of fortitude, that I may bear my cross with you, and that I may overcome with courage all the obstacles that oppose my salvation, the spirit of knowledge, that I may know God and know myself and grow perfect in the science of the saints, the spirit of piety, that I may find the service of God sweet and amiable. The spirit of fear, that I may be filled with a loving reverence towards God and may dread in any way to displease him. Mark me, dear Lord, mark all of us with the sign of your true disciples and animate us in all things with your spirit. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Apostles, pray for us.
the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.